The Tom Woods Show, episode 1432. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody, tell me if this sounds like you. You're debating health care with your interventionist friends, and you just can't seem to hold your own. They immediately claim the moral high ground, and you just don't know how to respond. Well, check out my free ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Healthcare, and you will be shocked. Yes, even you, a veteran libertarian, will be shocked at just how solid the libertarian position is. Pick it up for free at yourfriendsarewrong.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. Very, very glad to be joined once again by our old friend Gary Chartier, who is Associate Dean of the Business School at La Sierra University, where he is also Distinguished Professor of Law and Business. We're going to be talking about his brand new book, A Good Life in the Market, An Introduction to Business Ethics. It is not easy to find a good business ethics textbook for reasons you can imagine, but Gary has done it. It's a tremendous book that you will love reading. It does not feel like a textbook. It's very persuasive. It's it's very carefully argued for an audience that is probably not on board and is probably not familiar with some of the ideas Gary and you good listeners uh, believe in. And it, it it just succeeds on every front. I'm so pleased with it. So as soon as I saw it, I said, we're getting old Gary Chartier back on the show. Gary, welcome back. Great to be here, Tom. I am very, very interested in this book. I love this book. I love the way you've organized it. I love the array of topics that are in here. I love how humane it is. And I think you know what I, I mean by that. It, yeah. it, it really is aimed at human flourishing and particularly in this aspect of our lives. But I want to start off with something that I learned, I think, talking to Nick Capaldi, who uh, at least for a while – taught uh, business ethics at Loyola University in New Orleans. And I think it was him. He was suggesting to me that when you look at the typical business ethics textbook, there is, in general, a strong bias in it. Now, first of all, have you encountered such a bias? And secondly, what is that bias? So, you know, I want to be careful about this because there are lots of business ethics texts out there that I certainly haven't looked at. But if I had to guess, I would say that Business ethics uh, professors like uh, humanities academics more generally probably are pretty comfortable with the uh, social democratic consensus that obtains in a lot of American academia. So I would guess that uh, that would tend to be reflected in a lot of the texts that uh, students might encounter. Right. Okay. All right. Now, your book is taking the idea of living a good life in the market as being a subset of living a good life more generally. And you try to describe in brief what that looks like. So let's start there. What does it look like to be living a good life? And given that I think a lot of people in this day and age recoil from the idea that there might be certain basic principles for living a good life. You're not saying that there's only one way to live. That That's a very different claim from saying that there is a way to think about what it means to live a good life. That's absolutely right. I I really believe that uh, uh, recognizing and celebrating the variety of uh, human lives is entirely compatible with recognizing at the same time that there are uh, ways of living that work uh, just as there are ways of living that don't work. 
And uh, so like uh, most of the rest of my uh, stuff, this book really is rooted in uh, the uh, Thomist Aristotelian uh, kind of natural law tradition, uh, though I've tried to express that in a way that I hope isn't unduly ponderous and uh, you know doesn't get in the way of people's understanding uh, the approach. So what I try to do in the book, in the first two chapters, is to talk about, first of all, different ways in which a life can go well and uh, uh, thinking about friendship and aesthetic experience and knowledge and all the other things that uh, might go into potentially uh, a life that uh, we might want, not just for ourselves, but for the people we care about. And so then uh, in the second chapter, I'm interested in how we might choose with respect to those various ways of living well. And so I suggest that, you know, there are some principles there, including uh, what I call recognition, which is just acknowledging that there are specific ways in which uh, things can go well and choosing with those in mind, uh, fairness, uh, just not, not making arbitrary distinctions uh, among, uh, among those who are affected by one's actions, respect, not choosing to injure, uh, you know, oneself or others, Efficiency, uh, pretty straightforwardly, not uh, not unnecessarily, uh, you know, kind of wasting in one's pursuit of, of various goals, uh, and then commitment, organizing one's life by making uh, making commitments that provide some structure and uh, order and you know, kind of hierarchy for the different uh, values that one one pursues. Because my view is that while there are these many different ways in which a life can go well. Obviously, any given life isn't necessarily going to include all of those and isn't going to include all of those in the same uh, uh, weight, uh, right? So, I mean, I, I very much agree with the I, – I disagree, rather, sorry, with the people uh, for whom balance is everything. I think it's entirely okay to be really enthusiastic and passionate about some things and to sideline others as long as you don't somehow pretend that those other things aren't valuable and actively attack them in your own life or other people's lives. Uh, it's perfectly okay to focus on some things. And so a good life, uh, I think, very often will be a, a life that's focused on particular goods uh, in light of those different principles that I lay out. Now, given that you have a lot of specific topics, I, I'm, of course, going to address some of those specific ones. But speaking generally, how would you try to situate people in the problem of understanding how it's possible to lead a good life in the market. I think people think of the marketplace as being something amoral, as being a place not really where – that human flourishing comes once you punch the clock and go home. Uh, that's that's when real life is lived. You're, you, the, the work you do is a necessary evil. I, I don't think people a lot of times think of it as an arena in which human flourishing is meant to continue. So what does it look like in the market? Yeah, so I believe really strongly that, uh, at least in principle, uh, obviously you recognize there are there are distorted and toxic environments, uh, you know, within the market that may complicate things. But at least in principle, it seems to me that markets provide all kinds of opportunities for human flourishing. People can develop their various skills and their creativity. They can build relationships that matter. And of course, at the same time, they can contribute indirectly to flourishing, right? So I don't want to, you know, even as I say that it matters uh, that uh, flourishing really does happen on an ongoing basis in the marketplace. Obviously, what happens in the marketplace also supports flourishing outside of the marketplace. I don't want it at all to say, 
as the stereotypical person you envisioned might say, oh, well, that's the only time good things happen. Uh, you know, work is a necessary evil. Not at all. I think great things happen uh, by way of skill and creativity and relationship and uh, aesthetic experience and so forth in the marketplace. And at the same time, the marketplace supports various kinds of flourishing that occur outside work as well. Now, let's talk about uh, your section on property. Yes. Property, I think, to some people sounds like if, if you're trying to vindicate the rights of property, this sounds to them like privilege or this sounds to them like greed and selfishness. And you've got a description of the, the functions of property that, again, I, I, I think the word is humane, where you're, I think you're helping people to think about it in ways they haven't before. Yeah, th- thank you, Tom. I mean, what I'm trying to do is to spell out you know, what I think is broadly, again, a natural law view of property, but the natural law tradition has, I think, sometimes seen property as important, but as nonetheless, in a fairly loosey-goosey way, conventional, so that, uh, you know, I think for many natural law thinkers, it's been relatively okay for uh, state authorities to interfere willy-nilly with, uh, with property. What I've tried to do is to show that the more you take seriously the different ways in which a scheme of property rights you know, can hang together and the more you recognize how such a scheme can support uh, human flourishing, the more constraints there are on, the, on what's going to count as a reasonable property system. And uh, so I want to look at everything from the way in which a property system fosters autonomy to the way in which it contributes to relationships to the way in which it, uh, you know, in one way or another can uh, help people uh, express uh, creativity and maintain social norms, a whole range of different things, 20-odd different uh, characteristics that I want to uh, reference. And the idea then is that once we start to see that as embodied creatures, we've got to make decisions about property and that there really are Uh, Once we recognize that it's particular people who flourish, there really are reasons then for uh, a system of private or, as Hayek would have said, several property. And uh, we recognize that the more of these constraints uh, we recognize, the more of these uh, ways in which a property system can contribute to flourishing we recognize, the more we see that there, there are limits on what's going to count as a good property system. And so I try to suggest, and I don't claim this is particularly original, uh, this sort of model goes back to, to David Hume, and you find it in people like Anthony DeJazai and Randy Barnett. But uh, I want to suggest that we look at these different aspects of flourishing that a property system serves, and in light of those, we can see that you know there's perhaps not a perfect case, but there's at least a good case for what I suggest are three basic or as I like to say, baseline property rules. These are what I call effective possession, free exchange, and exclusive control. And the idea is that effective possession uh, says, look, when something is unowned, uh, then you can establish ownership over it by taking effective possession. That's, I think, perhaps a less metaphysical way of talking about much the same thing that Locke has in mind when talking about mixing labor. Uh, That the second rule then is that once you've got something, you're free to give it away or exchange it at your at your discretion. And then exclusive control says while you have it, 
you're the one who gets to make decisions about it. So we can imagine more complicated property rules, but I think that simplicity actually and reliability are among the really important characteristics of any good property system. And that's why I argue that uh, we should uh, we should presume these fairly simple, straightforward property rules that in different ways further autonomy, creativity, relationship, and so forth. Now, you do have a section on wealth, it's true, but couldn't somebody come back at you on that property thing and say that why doesn't the need of others enter into and and circumscribe your rights to property so uh, that's i think an important consideration and indeed i want to argue of course uh, in the book uh, as i think the certainly the aristotelian thomas tradition has consistently maintained that uh philanthropic generosity that, that giving to, to, to others, including those uh, certainly who are in significant material need, uh, is part of living a good life. It's part of what being a good person means, and it is therefore ethically significant and not ethically optional. But whether the system should be structured in such a way that uh, – uh, the legal authorities or the state or whoever should be able to interfere willy-nilly with uh, people's property in order to uh, address the kinds of needs you're talking about is a different matter. And what, I would, what I'd like to argue is that at the systemic level, we're all better off uh, societal, uh, you know, well-being. Uh, I mean, I'm not suggesting there is some some thing called society that has well-being, but widely shared prosperity is fostered when there are these simple, reliable rules uh, that aren't interfered with. And so, uh, it seems to me that the concern that you note is a legitimate one, but. I think very often somebody who highlights that kind of concern has in mind a particular case and wonders about uh, you know making uh, making a, an exception in that case rather than taking a step back and asking what uh, the systemic effects would be if ongoing unpredictable meddling in uh, in property relations were possible. So I think you get very different results when the uh, issues of human need that you rightly highlight are addressed by uh, individuals and by voluntary institutions that uh, operate within the confidence that people have in that reliable system of background property rules. All right. Now, I obviously you're right about what you say about being generous as being part of living a good life. I want to build on that by asking you about a topic that I don't think you you mention by using the term corporate social responsibility. But of course, that's been, I mean, I'm not in business ethics, so I don't know if that's still in fashion or not, but I know it was for a long time. And in your sections on, let's say, generosity, and then I also found a bit of it in your section on purpose, there is some discussion about what we might call organizational generosity. So the the firm, let's say, makes charitable contributions or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and it calls to mind what Milton Friedman said yes. about yes. this, which was that the firm exists to make profits, period. That's why it's there. Once it makes the profits, uh, you can do what you want to with the profits. But, but that's what it exists for. It is not a welfare institution. It's not a philanthropic organization. What's your view of that? So, you know, I think I think that's complicated, and I think you you rightly note that I kind of wrestle with that without um, you know maybe really coming to a really definitive conclusion. So I think obviously a shareholder might reasonably object if he or she is ill served by uh, 
uh, you know, by corporate generosity. And uh, so I think that's something to be reasonably concerned about, right, on the part of the shareholder and the part of the corporation. On the other hand, I don't think we can say in the abstract what a, uh, you know, quote, the purpose of, uh, of a business is, because I think different, uh, different you know, participants, different executives, different line workers, different investors, you know, bring different expectations and uh, different commitments uh, to their participation in the life of a business. And I think it is indeed part of the culture of some businesses and something, therefore, that investors surely recognize when they invest in those businesses, that there is some kind of connection that uh, those businesses have with particular uh, charities and with particular uh, communities. Now, Friedman obviously recognizes that it may well be, in one way or another, directly beneficial for the organization to engage in uh, charitable activities. That It may uh, help to brand the organization or it may, in one way or another, uh, you know, refine corporate capacities, right? Uh, you know, you might engage in a charitable activity that turns out to build your competencies in other areas. And I think all of those would pretty directly feed the bottom line. And I don't think Friedman would have much of an objection to that. But I'd want to say, if a uh, firm does in fact uh, go beyond that, sometimes maybe investors would have reason to object that their resources are being misused. Sometimes I think, however, that they might well recognize that, uh, uh, you know, they've invested in the firm with a particular set of commitments and uh, a, a particular corporate culture, and they might recognize that that's very much part of what it is to, to support that firm. So I don't, I don't think there's a, a general observation that I can make about what all firms ought to do uh, in those cases. And I don't want to be dismissive of the concerns Friedman's got. I do think there are going to be cases that uh, indeed might look a little different. Let's talk about some issues that people, and here we're using the term in the correct scientific sense, um, people known as left libertarians would have uh, special concerns about, namely the conditions in which some laborers find themselves in in some employment situations. Yes. Um, because on the one hand, you can make a, a, a case that, well, they entered into a voluntary contract, and if that means they are subject to drug testing and having their social media snooped into and all that, mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. that's too oh, so much the worse for them because they agreed to it. But I, my sense is that the left libertarian argument has to do with, well, Contract or not, we can still, in the same way that I'm perfectly at liberty to be critical of a firm's decision on some choice they've made and still be a libertarian in good standing, you can likewise say, I think it's really crummy for a company to do that and and treat its workers like chattel. So what are your considerations here in a textbook on business ethics when it comes to the treatment of workers uh, in cases like that? Yeah, th- thanks, Tom. I think I think that's something that that matters uh, a good deal to me, and then I try to I try to handle uh, in a couple of different places in the book, particularly in the chapter on privacy and the chapter on firm uh, organization. So I certainly recognize that uh, in a uh, you know in a in a genuinely open market, there will be a variety of employment arrangements on offer. And I don't suppose that uh, uh, there's one uh, one such arrangement that's going to make sense economically. And I don't suppose there's one such arrangement that's going to make sense ethically. But I do think that it's important to recognize that, especially as we spend, in many cases, more and more time and energy uh, in our workplaces, as those workplaces play really crucial uh, roles in our lives, uh, that... Uh, you know, it would be important for supervisors and employers to ask the question, you know, just how much uh, they would be comfortable seeing their uh, their autonomy compromised uh, in the workplace. 
And so, again, there are very specific, uh, you know, considerations that are relevant in, in you know, particular cases, right? So, you know, if I'm driving a, uh, you know, an 18-wheeler, uh, it might be really quite important to make sure that I'm not intoxicated, right? And various, uh, you know, there are all sorts of liability issues there uh, uh, could arise, and uh, it doesn't seem at all unreasonable to be concerned about that. On the other hand, uh, uh, if I'm an accountant, and I happen to, uh, you know, to uh, smoke some wacky tobacco in my off hours, it's not really clear that I'm going to be making uh, any, uh, you know, putting my employer at risk. Now, again, very specific circumstances have to be taken into account, which is why I don't believe uh, that I can ever in this book or elsewhere offer some code that everybody's got to take seriously. But I think we do value our autonomy, and we recognize, as you say, that just because somebody has the right to do something, and we can agree that that person should have the right to do whatever it is, it doesn't follow that it's necessarily uh, wise or helpful or appropriate or reasonable. And so, you know, I think it's a good thing that we're in a culture that no longer imposes uh, criminal penalties for people who cheat on their spouses. That doesn't mean we all, any of us want to be cheated on by our spouses, you know, and uh, regard that as morally acceptable. And so I think in the same way, it's, um, you know, it's, it's reasonable to say that, uh, you know, contracts uh, should certainly be able to, uh, in principle, embody a variety of principles uh, for, uh, uh, you know, workplace relationships. But, most of us, at least, I think, would prefer to function in workplaces in which our capacity to make decisions, our autonomy, our dignity uh, were affirmed and uh, and respected. And so I'd like to see that uh, happen as much as possible. I think anybody who cares about freedom from physical coercion, who cares about freedom from the state, and recognizes that that's especially important and it matters before anything else, but such a person might nonetheless, I think, not really like to be, uh, to be pushed around so much. And, uh, uh, so yeah, I would, I would prefer, uh, to see a, uh, a workplace culture in which there were, there were as much autonomy as possible. Now, as long as I have you, let me go on a, a brief digression about this because I'm not yeah. really sure I totally understand it, but I get the feeling reading some, and I, I, I'll admit, not actually in the literature, but just reading offhand comments on social media among yeah. some left libertarians. And here I'm not talking about people who have certain left-wing cultural commitments. We're talking about the people who look at capitalism a certain way and, in fact, mm-hmm. don't even care for the term capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is there any problem that you or they have with the wage relation in principle? I mean, is it is it that you would want – ideally worker-owned firms that the workers aren't in that kind of situation vis-a-vis an employer? Or can you imagine a a wage relation that would be just um, as long as it's humane? Or what's the way – how do you answer that? Yeah, so – and I think this will be apparent from what I have to say in the book. I don't have – and in principle, uh, you know, kind of normative objection to, uh, you know, to the employment relation. I don't think that's uh, uh, somehow uh, inherently evil. I think there are probably some people who do think that, and, uh, you know, certainly some of those people, you know, deserve to be taken seriously. I think uh, I think David Ellerman has posed a bunch of interesting questions there that need to be addressed, but that's not my view. Uh, I think that uh, you can perfectly well have an employment relationship that, uh, uh, that's uh, that's perfectly okay morally. Um, you know, I think that the the uh, very fine Austrian economist David Prochitko has uh, written over the years a number of interesting things about uh, 
uh, the uh, way in which uh, uh, Austrians and other free market uh, folks might think about uh, worker-managed firms. And I think they've, uh, you know, makes a good case that there's something attractive there. But I also recognize that uh, there are risks and liabilities associated with uh, uh, taking the kind of financial responsibility that you often do in a worker-managed firm, that there really are uh, attractive uh, alternatives, uh, you know, that uh, don't involve taking the same kind of risk when you uh, instead enter an employment relation. I don't want to, you know, kind of be kind of trivialize that at all. So I don't think I'm not opposed in principle to uh, to employment for wages. I just think that uh, a variety of options would be good. And even in a uh, kind of conventional employment setting, I think it's uh, a good thing. And I try to suggest not just for the worker, but for the firm uh, when uh, employee uh, uh, dignity and autonomy uh, are taken seriously. I want to talk about boycotts for a minute. You have a section on boycotts. I do. A lot of times we'll hear people like us who are anarchists say that Civil society will often take care of particularly egregious actors through voluntary means like boycotts. But I'm wondering about the circumstances in which a boycott is called for. I mean, obviously, there's no blanket answer to that because it depends on your individual conscience. But what concerns me is that the the I'm sure that most of the companies I interact with are making donations to causes I can't stand. That's probably true. (laughs) But I I don't want to spend my life – looking this stuff up because I feel like that is the invasion of politics into every nook and cranny of our existence. And so even when I'm told I should boycott X, my instinct, I have to say 99% of the time is I don't want to boycott X because once I boycott X, then I have to boycott Y, Z and all the rest of them. And then what kind of a life is this? At some point, you just have to engage in the normal activities of commercial society and live the best life you can and leave it to them. You know, they can answer to their maker how they donated their money, but I I can't devote my life to that. I have other priorities. Yeah, I think that, um, so I, I try to discuss in the boycotts uh, section uh, three distinct issues, right? So uh, when is a boycott permissible? When is a boycott required? When is a boycott uh, precluded, right? Um, I think that, uh, and just to to try to address each of those fairly quickly, I think clearly we can imagine a case in which a uh, in which a boycott is just in principle unreasonable, either because it's undertaken out of bad motives, out of some kind of uh, kind of hostility, or in which it just uh, uh, turns out, so I think an individual boycott will rarely play this role, turns out to impose costs on, uh, uh, on others that, uh, that one wouldn't be willing to shoulder oneself. I think a boycott is going to be required in a very narrow range of cases. And the only, the only kind of case, I think, in which a boycott is going to be required will be, I think, again, either if doing business with a given trading partner necessarily involves, and I can't actually imagine a case in which this would be true, uh, necessarily involves sharing all of the purposes of that trading partner and the trading partner has bad purposes, or in which uh, the consequences of one's action you know, impose costs on others that, again, one, one wouldn't be willing to accept for oneself or one's loved ones. So in the vast majority of the cases, I think a boycott is going to be 
uh, a permissible kind of protest. Uh, if one wants to engage in that, uh, it's going to be an expressive or symbolic act. It's almost certainly not going, in most cases, to change the behavior of the uh, the boycotted entity. And, uh, you know, I think we engage in all sorts of expressive activities over time. We certainly can't uh, expect ourselves or others to uh, either celebrate or protest all the things that might be worth celebrating or protesting. And uh, so I think in general, that's just kind of up to us, except in that the narrow range of cases in which uh, it's just in principle unreasonable to engage in a boycott, so it's just ruled out, or uh, we find uh, that it, it actually would be, uh, would be required. But again, I think the required cases are, are few and far between. All right, let's say one more thing. I want to, there are so many topics I could have chosen, but advertising I like because this is a topic where even a lot of libertarians uh, you'll find are turned off by advertising or they think there's something kind of underhanded about it or you get this complaint from some people that advertising simply manipulates consumers into wanting whatever's yeah. for sale. But of course then why would you bother doing uh, marketing research on any product if all you have to do is hypnotize people with an ad? <laughs> you know, right, Obviously right. it's not quite that easy. So, uh, But at the same time, even though we might recognize the value of advertising and I'd like to get from you what you think the value of advertising is, um, this is a book on business ethics and presumably there are some forms of advertising that if you want to lead a good life, you ought not to engage in. So what are your reflections on this? Yeah, so I think that um – Advertising can, you know, can provide useful, you know, information to consumers about product availability and uh, also probably just help to uh, uh, give some products particular meanings uh, in the marketplace by associating them with, uh, you know, particular branding strategies. And I think, and I think those, are, those are perfectly okay. I think that uh, ads can entertain us. I think ads can just draw our attention in the first place to products we wouldn't be aware of otherwise, and I think that's that's certainly worthwhile. And uh, ads can even, though this is perhaps a bit of a stretch, but I, I try to suggest it anyway in the book, ads can sometimes help to uh, kind of build communities of particular consumers uh, who, who share appreciation for, for particular products understood particular ways. So all of that, I think, is just fine and, uh, you know, really can be uh, can be very useful. I think that where advertising goes off the rails, uh, really, probably is primarily when uh, really it's just it's just deceptive, uh, and you know it's tough to maintain a, a genuinely deceptive ad, especially in today's social media environment, in which there's going to be a lot of review, a lot of critique uh, there. Or also, I suppose we can imagine cases in which an ad isn't deceptive, but in one way or another, it's manipulative, in which the content of the ad is factually correct, but in which the uh, the advertiser is aware that uh, you know it will likely be misunderstood to the to the detriment of the consumer. And I think being purposefully manipulative. Uh, falls in roughly the same category as being purposefully deceptive, and I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a fan of that. I don't think that, uh, of course, this is the kind of thing that requires uh, some kind of you know involvement by the by the legal system. I guess there might be cases, extreme cases, where you really did reach the level of fraud. But uh, uh, but absent that, uh, I'm certainly not thinking about uh, legal uh, liability there. I think uh, increasingly in a culture in which, again, uh, with uh, social media, we have the ability to share this information broadly and talk about it uh, readily amongst ourselves. Those kinds of uh, bad behaviors, I think, will be pretty quickly uh, challenged. 
but I think that you know across the board uh, there are lots of lots of things that uh, you know really are quite useful about advertising, and uh, uh, I certainly don't want to. Uh, to just be dismissive at all. I think uh, I think ads can serve quite useful purposes, and, uh, and I'm glad we have them. Well, the book is A Good Life in the Market, An Introduction to Business Ethics by Gary Chartier. Gary, it's a beautiful book. It's an affordable book, thank goodness, thanks to the American Institute for Economic Research. So I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1432. I urge people to pick up a copy and read it. And uh, thank you very much, Gary, for your time. Pleasure to be here, Tom. All right, folks, two things to tell you before we wrap up for today. One is you have got to tune in tomorrow for 1433 because I got Daniel McAdams from the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity on here to talk about this ridiculous thing you may have seen online where there's somebody, you'll find out exactly who tomorrow, he's one of the usual suspects, was insinuating that if you can believe this, the 2008 campaign was somehow bankrolled or influenced by the Russian government, the Ron Paul campaign. Are you, are you kidding me? That's that's what's been claimed. It is on the basis, literally, of nothing. I've gone through and looked at what the claim is. There's nothing. It's like less than, like, I'm, I'm even trivializing the word nothing by applying it to this. I mean, there's nothing to this. So... I'm going to have Daniel come on. We're going to talk this through. and You're going to enjoy hearing what people are reduced to. And they, they got to criticize Ron Paul. This is all they can think to do is come up with uh, inane nonsense like this. Other thing to tell you about, of course, is as usual, because I have very, very active and entrepreneurial listeners of this show, I've got a new site. Now, this is a brilliant idea by a listener of the show. It's called askahomeschoolmom.net. And it's exactly what you would think. She's been homeschooling for 25 years, and she says, I know sometimes it's good to filter a question through the experience and perspective of another homeschooling parent. Well, if you go to askahomeschoolmom.net, just ask your quick question about homeschooling. If she doesn't know the answer, she'll get you an answer from another veteran homeschooler or from a current homeschooling parent or even from a homeschooled student. So it's very, very worth checking out. I mean, what a great resource and what a great idea that is. So askahomeschoolmom.net is the website. I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1432. Now let's all say it together. Why did askahomeschoolmom.net get free publicity in the Tom Woods Show? Because they got the hosting through my special link. So you get a really good deal on your hosting, plus publicity from me, plus membership in my private mutual help bloggers group, a backlink on my site, which helps you with your search engine ranking, and a couple of dozen video tutorials to get you up and running as a WordPress blogger. So these are great bonuses. You get them all for nothing. All you gotta do is use my link. So check out the details at tomwoods.com publicity, and we'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.